Stavros Yanuka welcoming you back to Wise Words. Today's guest is Stephen McGregor. Uh, he's a global expert in executive health and performance. He has a PhD and master's degree in design thinking. He's the founder and CEO of the Leadership Academy of Barcelona, and he's authored or co-authored six books in the past 11 years. Okay, well, Stephen, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you, Stavros. Thanks for the invitation. Not at all. Um, Stephen, why don't we start by just having you share your story with, with our listeners, and in particular, why you decided to sort of pursue uh, what you called sustainable executive performance and well-being in the workplace. Yeah, not a good place to start. Um, I think there's a couple of main elements there. You know, I was doing a PhD in design thinking, and that was just you know, the first time in my student life that I had a really good uh, opportunity and space to do some thinking and some quality thinking. And my personal takeaway on that thought process was that I was thinking a lot better and I was a lot more productive when I was training and when I was moving. You know, I did a lot of athletics and I really began to understand or appreciate the link between the physical and, and the mental. And that really crystallized for me when I went to, to Stanford. I was a visiting researcher in Stanford. I was studying at the design center there. Uh, and I was training with Olympic athletes at the same time as, you know, they were students. And I was just so impressed with that level of excellence in different parts of their their own lives, right? And, you know, that I really valued it at that point. I came back to Spain and I was teaching in ESA Business School uh, and I was observing some of these executive education programs and I just thought there's a better way of learning and there's a better way of working, right? That has to, yeah. at least in the first instance, involve more of the physical self. So right there, that, that performance element of health and well-being was, was, uh, was, uh, let's say begun and, and, and linked very much with the idea of sport. I, I mean, to a certain extent, the sort of mind, mind, body connection, at least vis-a-vis -vis education has sort of been around with us for quite a long time in the, the, Uh, the classical Greeks were, you know, very clear that, you know, education in their minds had a, a very strong physical sort of component embedded within it. You know, that's why you had gymnasia, you know, at the, at the various academies at the Lyceum. And obviously that's carried through into our, you know, modern conceptions of, of a good education. Most top schools have, you know, sports programs, athletic, they encourage, but then all that seems to kind of break down when we get to the to the workplace why do you think that is no exactly you know the, the, you know even my my experience at stanford which is replicated in a lot of schools worldwide as you say there's that there's that search for excellence you know i think it, it could be linked a little bit more you know you get this kind of conceptional orthodoxy of the dumb jock which is still kind of hard to shake loose in a lot of places around the world right but even a lot of real work i think it is john ratey and the book spark in the last you know 10 years ago really looking at the the science and the research that's coming around for example high school students they run a hard mile first thing in the morning and their scores on maths te uh, math tests that morning are, are much higher yeah. from that physical that intense physical exercise right but it certainly does break down the workplace i i think i i love your you know your link to the to the greeks right that was a very big influence in, in my own work and even in the beginning of the sustaining executive performance book we talk about the ancient greek games and then baron pierre de coubertin re-establishing the modern olympics right and i i think even that 
that idea that he had of Olympism, which was about you know bringing to education for for in, you know, the two aims of the games were essentially to, for peace between nations and also because he felt that young people of the day were overly focused on their mental abilities to the detriment of their physical self. Right, so a lot of that is. Yeah. You know, and, and even in ancient Greek society, you know, going to the gym was considered a civic duty. And Plato and Socrates, yeah. they they did this, right? It breaks down in the workplace. I don't know, maybe linking just to the whole, the the, the broader sense of what business was, especially in the twentieth century, right? You know, if you look at corporate social responsibility, which is still on a journey, uh, but then you look at even people like Milton Friedman, who said that the business of business is business, right? And it was just. Yeah okay, you've done your development and maybe that development has been about learning a particular function or acquiring expertise. And maybe you did a bit of sport, which is great. Now you're in business and you better just get your head yeah. down and do the work. And and I, I think a lot of that also related to the, the origins of the Industrial Revolution, where it was specialization of work and, you know, just basically, you know, a sign of getting stuff done was that you were sitting at a, a place of work probably with your head down and just doing something on a repetitive basis. And, and that was it, right? So I think a lot of those elements are in there. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, it's the idea of essentially labor as a, you're a factor of production. Exactly, yeah. Right, you're, you're, you're a cog in the machine, whereas, again, go, you know, to sort of go back to the Greek ideal, if you will, it, then it was about citizenship, right? So... The, the, the education system to a certain extent was geared towards what will make you a good, you know, a, a well-rounded citizen. You know, part of that meant that you, you know, you had to be able to fight as well when necessary. And therefore there was, you know, I guess even the practical dimension to that physical component. But beyond sort of sport and exercise, though, do you, do you take a broader view of well-being? Because you, you, the title of your new book is, is Chief Well-Being Officer. So it, that to me suggests a more encompassing view of what, you know, what well-being is beyond the very obvious sort of benefits associated with physical activity. No, for sure. I mean, the point of departure in, in my work, which, you know, it's a journey that, you know, the, the, that time at Stanford was 2001. The Leadership Academy in Barcelona was founded 2007. So really in earnest this last 12 years, the point of departure was the physical self. And on a very basic level, our, um, uh, our, our kind of call to arms, let's say, was we wanted to remind executives that they have a body because we felt that when they became an executive, they forgot all about it. But then we quickly learned a couple of things that it wasn't just for executives. And in, in, in many cases, it was just anyone within business. And, and we kept the executive term in, in, in that program because it relates to the type of thinking that we do as knowledge workers. Everyone does today, right? Executive function, which is compromised by sleep deprivation and is improved by exercise. So we kind of kept that term. But yeah, we did quickly bring it out to uh, mental health. You know, one of the elements in the sustained executive performance model is focus. So just the, um, you know, the dangers of multitasking and smartphone addiction and, and all of these different things. Um, you know, even my PhD was on virtual teams. So 
you know, back 20 years ago almost, I was looking at the real importance of the human element when technology was taking over, right? But really that, that mental health and that mental well-being really does spread out into things like purpose, linking in turn with corporate social responsibility, which is essentially the purpose of an organization. And a lot of CSR initiatives are trying to engage the new generation of talent and showing that generation of talent there's an impact for you know, working with us and it relates to purpose. So things like purpose and things like learning really does broaden out well-being, which is, of course, been, been tackled by many different uh, people around the world. And as you say, in Chief Wellbeing Officer, we, we did broaden that out, right? So um, a lot of the core, let's say, um, you know, let's more standard health and well-being content on the physical side and, 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 and mental health was complemented by purpose and values and the importance of learning in a longer life and a longer career. I think that's that all I mean to me that all sounds sounds great and and in some respects self maybe even self self-evident to a certain extent but I I, I mean I, I feel though that the big elephant in the room that isn't being addressed is what I would call the culture of maybe overwork and, and there's a couple of pieces to it and I'd love to sort of get your your reactions uh, to, to this, there's one piece which is increasingly in 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 our you know since the industrial revolution, we very much define ourselves by by what we do, the, the work that we do. You know, I'm a whatever, I'm an educator, I'm a, a lawyer, a, a banker, whatever. So th- there's that that element, and then within that, there's this I want to call it macho culture of you know. I've got to put in the hours. I've got to be seen to be sort of burning the midnight oil. And there's a kind of one-upmanship in terms of, of how hard you, you work. And unless and until that is addressed, then I, can, I feel that, yes, it's great in what you're saying. And then, and, you know, corporates will continue handing out gym memberships. And, but unless we kind of address that philosophy, if you will, around, you know, what is work, and, and how much of it do you really need to be doing, then I kind of fear that you're fighting a losing battle at the end of the day. No, you're absolutely right. You make some excellent points there, Stavros. You know, the, when we started, the, when I started this journey in sustained executive performance, it wasn't necessarily about saying, let's be more well or let's be healthier. It was saying, let's be healthier and more well as a means of being a higher performer. So it really was connected to the business case there because yeah. I felt that there was just so much skepticism around health and well-being that I didn't even want to use the word. So it was sustaining executive performance. It says you want to be a higher performer, which I guess is in line with these macho elements of how we define ourselves and you know how others see us as, as perhaps being successful and all these things. Then it was saying, okay, well, this is what you do. You, you sleep better, you move, and this is going to make you a better performer, better ideas, take better decisions, all these kind of things, right? So that was that was really the start of that journey. And, and more recently, it has been very much aware of the need to, you know, change cultures within an organization. And it's all very well having nap rooms and, uh, you know, free fruit on a Friday and a policy that says don't send emails on vacation. But then you have the CEO and he's flouting all these rules, right? So then the young person in the organization says, well, I want to, I want to be that person in the future. So I'm not going to follow all these good practices either. And I'm going to burn myself out. I need to break myself to get where I want to go. You have that, right? I do think it's changing to a degree. I, I, I do think a lot of the, 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 the younger generation, if we want to call them millennials, I think they want to be successful, but I think they do realize also that they have one life to live 
and they don't necessarily want to give it all to the company, right? They don't want to just kill themselves in the intent. And I do think that there is this passion for life from a lot of the younger generation that they're not afraid of hard work, but they still don't want to compromise or squeeze life out completely. And and I think there's more fluidity between you know, work and life, right? And, and it's not an easy balance, right? But, you know, even go back to first, you know, first industrial revolution, Robert Owen, you know, the eight hours work, eight hours rest, eight hours, uh, play, right? In a very serial fashion. And a lot of the work that we do now with leaders and even young high potentials is to say, you know, be aware of your 24 hours and think about the fluidity in those 24 hours. Of course, you're working the main block, which was the traditional block, nine to five or whatever. You're going to have work in the other 16 hours. So also be aware that when you're in the workplace, you can do other things that were normally not allowed to be there, like rest and leisure, right? And it's a very hard balance to, 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 to maintain, but we're trying to get young people to push back. And I think there is signs that they're doing that. What, what, are, what are your thoughts? I'm just on that. What are your thoughts about some of these sort of experiments that we're hearing about coming out of Sweden, out of New Zealand, where you've got sort of companies now experimenting with, you know, four or five and sort of six hour work days instead of the, the traditional eight do you, I mean, do you, have you have you studied that at all? Do you have any any thoughts on that? I, I've looked at it a bit. I mean, it's still kind of emerging the results in that, and it's still in the, very much in the experimental phase. I'm very aware of the limit that even I have on a daily or a weekly basis to do quality work, and we can all chug through and do the firefighting or do the administrative things. But what distinguishes us, and what's going to distinguish us more distinguish us more in the future is that quality thinking, right? And even if you look at books like um, Deep Work that talk about hard focus and talking about even, you know, two to three hours a day, if you can do that and hard focus, that's a good result. You know, I often say to my classes, if I'm flying uh, and a lot of it is kind of, you know, short, uh, medium haul, two, three hours, no distractions, no email, I am delighted with the work that I get done in that in that flight of two and three hours, and I would take that every day. And even if you look back in history, people like Charles Darwin, right, in, in their day, he would finish his main work day about noon, uh, and then he would kind of do other things, right? And so I think there is there is a real case there for saying, you know, the, the more quality over quantity is, you know, even Spain, for example, right? You know, well known as kind of long, I think in the U, in the EU, Spain is the country with the longest working week and the lowest level of productivity, right? So, yeah, I, I think Greece right is up there as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, the, 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 the but, countries most associated with the kind of siesta are, yeah. are actually the ones putting in the longest hours, but, yeah. you know, getting the least done. <laughs> But but coming yeah. you, know, you know even coming back to but, it, but it's not easy right I mean that that's the not good a stereotype story. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but even the kind of the, I've had some conversations even this week right with people in large organisations who have said to me uh, I've moved to a four day week and all it means is that I do the same work and I've got eighty percent of the salary right so that 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 isn't working for them I, and I think it may be the case that. 
if you're going to work to or make that change to the shorter working day or the shorter working week, the whole organization has to be in it and it has to be driven by top down. There has to be a commitment. And I think some of the experiments that have been taking place, I forget the name of the company, it's a company in the US that's the CEO that instilled it and he practices it first and foremost and then that behavior will come down through the organization. A lot of the cases that I've seen have been kind of smaller companies. Would that work with a massive company, a big successful big brand company? I don't know, but I think we've got a long way to get there. But but I think it's encouraging anyway. And say a little bit about you know what are, what's the sort of main thesis of of, of the book. I've I've sort of I've read through uh, the introduction. I have to say I haven't I haven't been able to read the uh, the whole book, but I've sort of picked up on a couple of couple of things where you talk about concepts like total intelligence. You talk about learning to live. Can just say a little bit about how you've how you've conceptualized this idea of the chief well-being officer, uh, and and what are some of the key messages that sort of come out of that? Sure. I mean, the title first of all um, is important to clarify. You know, a couple of people, and even it was like a review in Amazon, and he, he, this gentleman was um, upset, let's say, because he said this is not a book. To show you how to be a chief well-being officer, right? And <laughs> it was never meant to be that, right? It was it was more of a metaphor. You know, if someone goes away and, and, and many people have gotten in touch and said, I am a chief well-being officer at this company and this is great. I've got a little bit more idea of what to do. And if this position is created, then, then fantastic. But it wasn't necessarily about that. It was about taking that word well-being, which is associated with soft, the softer side of business, and putting a couple of hard words on either side of it, right? So chief and officer. So it was about elevating well-being as a strategic concern that that, that was basically the, the intent of the of the book and in, in the yeah in, in, in terms of the title right and in the content of the book you know we, we go through different areas in terms of the I guess just being an engineer I have this very strong desire for structure so we have these three parts on the you know on the why the what and the how and, and and four chapters in each so it was you know first of all establishing where we are and we've talked so far in this conversation about you know the first industrial revolution and, and we pick up in the you know the, the context of the fourth industrial revolution at the beginning of the book the subtitle of the book actually which was bounced in, uh, eventually by the publisher was to have fourth industrial revolution in there right and actually to say these are the changes that we need so situ- that we are in a very exciting time in, in human history, that we're going to see a lot of change going ahead. Uh, and yeah. to navigate that change, it's about bringing this well-being more to the fore and, and, and having enterprises which are more human. Um, so that's, you know, the first part. The second part is actually showing uh, a little bit more of the content of of humanizing business, let's say, in terms of, as you say, total intelligence uh, and aspects of learning. And then towards the end, it goes more towards a prescriptive uh, guide for people just to take some some elements on, on how to put that into practice. So that's it in a kind of nutshell. And what's sort of the what's the reception been so far? I mean, do you see do you see interest on the part of companies to to say how how can we put some of this into practice? Yeah, um, you know, as I said, you know, people get in touch and maybe they've got a new position of chief wellbeing officer, or, or maybe they're trying to just do a little bit more in terms of care from from HR. So you know, we have these conversations on a on a, on a regular basis, and and we have a a monthly podcast which you know came out of this platform, and and even in the 
last couple of months, we've been interviewing organizations like SAP, um, who are measuring the financial benefit, for example, of well-being interventions. And that was a really interesting study. They're finding just for a, a workforce of 400 people in commercial sales with small interventions, they're saving upwards of 10 million euros. Santander, we looked at that case last month and that was about designing culture. And interesting, a lot of, all of the senior leadership that they are you know, trying to instill a positive culture is about not just what they achieve, but they're evaluated 50% on how they achieve it, how they get the result. And even just this week with Heineken, um, so uh, the head of workplace services in Heineken, Spain, and he's trying to implement a lot more of these elements of well-being in so many different levels from health and safety through to culture and and, and training and, and office design and all of these different things. So it, it really has been a, a platform for having these conversations and also for me to just learn because it's such a fast moving space. You know, I think um, we've been talking to even companies like, um, you know, McKinsey the last couple of months who are, you know, known for a very hard business culture and they're trying to look at how does well-being fit within that. Uh, Deloitte in the US now have a chief well-being officer. So it is a fast-moving space and it's an opportunity for me just to have a conversation with a lot of these people and to learn myself and keep the pulse, you know. And do you have in mind, and you, you don't have to sort of name names, but just, just in a sense describe a company and the policies that they put in place that you feel gets closest to kind of a some sort of ideal of a company that takes well-being very seriously? Yeah, I mean, it's a common question. I don't know if I ever have the answer. You know, a lot of companies have elements of good practice. You know, a dan- and, and, and it is hard for a big company to get to get close because there's just that pull from just the sheer number of people in, in, in different parts of the world. You know, local needs really do matter. Um, you know, shareholder pressure. And, and it's just hard, right? It's just about maintaining that balance you know I don't know I think a lot of organizations that are closest it goes beyond even using the word well-being let's say you know um, a lot of big companies they tick they tick the box well with well-being and they have a well-being program and they have free bananas on a Friday and they kind of measure absenteeism and sickness and it's risk risk reduction and it doesn't really get us there right And, and I think the companies that are closest they don't even use the word well-being, but they have a culture which is very positive, right? And it's the whole um, literature on positive organizations and leaders who really do care, right? So a lot of servant leadership and they really do care what other people are or, or how they're living their lives and work. I think those are the organizations that get closest. But for a big company, is there any big company that has that globally? I'm, I'm not too sure, you know? Yeah. And, and look, there's a lot of cultural inertia, right? So it, it's, I mean, it it's very hard to shift and to change, you know, practices that have built up over, you know, over decades. Let's move maybe the conversation a bit towards the sort of the fourth industrial revolution. So one of the big concerns that have, that have sort of been expressed is, is this idea that we're going to, you know, see a fair amount of, of displacement of jobs, even, even sort of white collar, say mid level jobs. And we're going to, we're going to see a big shift towards this sort of gig economy type of companies. And and so how do your ideas, you know, translate into, into these much more kind of fluid settings where, you know, you don't have employees anymore, but you kind of have contractors. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting 
area, right? Um, you know, I'm not an expert on AI, but we we have looked at it a little bit in terms of the changes that is is going to have. You know, in terms of even just that last put in, on the gig economy and, and just portfolio working, it's, it's the way that I've lived my own life, right? In the past 20 years, you know, I, I've never really had one full employer. I've had a, a, a number of teaching roles and, and, and tried to do different things and trying to manage that portfolio and having, I guess, in one way, that discomfort and that ambiguity, which I think will be more commonplace going into the future, right? It is different, as I can see, if you have a portfolio or you're part of that gig economy in a very low-skilled fashion compared to if you're thinking for a living, you get a lot of reward from that, right? So I think that's that, that's going to be difficult to to manage. Even I'm thinking of some of the, one of the comments that you made earlier about what we do as, as human beings, we define ourselves by what we do, right? And, yeah. uh, and, and, and maybe regarding the success or otherwise of, of that position, right? And I think that will, that will change. I think there's even one little section in the book that I, you know, I said that was, uh, will you be happy gardening all day, right? So if you have much more free time, how are you going to spend that free time? And will you be comfortable? What, you know, that then, kind of forces you to kind of redefine who you are as a person, right? And what your purpose is. Your purpose is not leading a sales team through this transform, but it's something else, right? And I think there's going to be a phase of real discomfort and real ambiguity for us as a society, but hopefully we'll come out the other end in a, in a bit better neck. But the, the, the final point on that that we often focus on is that, and of course many people say this, that in the age of machines, it will be our human qualities that come more to the fore. And this is what we've been doing a lot in our programs more recently and, and building on our, uh, on my design thinking ex, um, experience and expertise, which is things like tolerance for ambiguity, right? And, and a lot of these, these human aspects that leaders and, and everyone in an organization have to, have to exhibit now. So, you know, even empathizing as a leader, right? And, and yeah. iterating, experimenting, not getting it right first time. And all of these more human elements that would distinguish us and not just doing calculations or just running through uh, or being productive, right? So again, coming back to a previous point, our language, I think, will change. It's not about leveraging advantage or being productive. And a lot of this lexicon came from this first industrial revolution. So I think there's many changes and exciting changes that are around the corner. And what are, what are your thoughts about you know, how we sort of reverse engineer some of this back into the education system. Have you, have you given that any thought? You know, just, just recently, just since, since Wise got in touch and then just keeping an eye on the social media things that you guys are doing and, and, you know, really looking forward to, to the summit in November. You know, I, I haven't really thought about it in, in a deep level, but, you know, I, I came back, I was thinking more recently, which is why I, I mentioned Olympism earlier and just, you know, what yeah. de Coubertin wanted to do with education. And I think on that narrow level of the physical self, I think there had been a worrying trend in schools around the world whereby they cut out physical education and they even cut yeah. kind of recess time or break time. Uh, and it goes against a lot of things that we do know that work, right? A lot of the Scandinavian model about, you know, delaying formal education and formal testing and just letting kids play and experiment, right? And that's yeah. how they're going to learn and, and more project-based learning and all this kind of thing. So yeah, I've been kind of thinking in that space, you know, and I, and I think both, which are both of my kind of key areas, which is design thinking and, I guess, health in, in general terms, I think we can bring that in a little bit more. Even my son, my son is four. 
And, uh, you know, they start school very early in Spain. So he was really at school, even though it was kind of nursery school, but it's still kind of formalized before his third birthday, right? And it was a long day. You know, they were in at nine in the morning. They didn't come out until quarter to five. And my wife and I were just kind of freaking out about that. You know, we said, no, we want to pick them up early. Um, and of course, the model exists so that parents in Spain can work and they continue working. You know, at least in the first year, they had a two-hour nap during the day. But then that was cut out when he became four. And I say, no, no, at least let them nap. You know, napping has just got such a benefit. But anyway, I think he's okay just now. But I'm even concerned that a lot of the science and research shows that teenagers, for example, really need their sleep more than, you know, it's that developmental phase as us as human beings. And it's not that they're lazy, but they really need more sleep as as a teenager. So... I, I and their this. sleep cycle changes. That's the other thing. I've, I've written a, a, a piece on this, uh, which, which was reasonably well received, ba- basically making the argument that, look, we really need schools to start later. Exactly. For, for, uh, for teenagers. Especially that's um, the time when, when they have their exams yeah. and yeah. that's going to define their future success. As an adult, you know, things are changing but up until now. And, and it's the time when they're in class at 8 a.m., but it really should be 10 a.m. or afterwards. And there are some experimental schools which are starting with that later time. I'm sure you, you know, you, you, you'd have looked at that. So all of these factors are really fascinating, right? It'd be interesting to dig into them a little bit more. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, just back onto the sort of exercise point as, as someone who's, who kind of struggles with, <laughs> with, with, with exercise, you know, I was always the, I was always the chubby kid in, uh, kid in school. I would, you know, I would, uh, I, you know, I would always come last in all the <laughs> all those kind of sports uh, sports days and races. You know, I also think we kind of need need to maybe rethink the way we do physical education. That you know, by all means, of course, have the have the games and the competitions. And I used to love that stuff. I mean, it, it, it never deterred me. The fact that I was I was uh, I, w- I was a poor. Um, Athlete never deterred me from getting, getting involved. But, but, you know, in terms of, of making it a sort of a lifetime habit, you know, I, I think sometimes there's a, you know, there's a tendency to kind of push too, too hard maybe towards, okay, you know, let me get, you know, get, get your timing and, you know, make sure you finish it within a, a certain period of time as opposed to actually just teaching people that, you know, taking a brisk half an hour walk every day gives you, I don't know, I read somewhere, maybe you know, 60 to 80% of the benefit. In other words, you don't have to run a marathon or even a half marathon to, to get the, the, you know, get the benefits. But we, you know, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just providing a, you know, <laughs> my own excuse, but, you know, I, I feel there's a tendency to sort of, you know, at some point to bifurcate, you're either into sports or you're not. Right. And, and, and there's no kind of, there's no spectrum to say, you know what, it doesn't matter if you're not good, just, you know, or, or if you can't run, you know, go for a, you know, a nice walk or something. And then just, exactly. No, you know. you're, you're absolutely right. And, and it's a big part on our programs, you know, and even my own experience. Yeah. I was, you know, I was, a, I was, a, I was a runner, I was an athlete and track. But in other sports, yeah, I was pretty mediocre, right? And I just had a natural ability for running, right? But what we do in our programs, we, we, and I, and I tell them, look, if running is for you, then great, right? But, and I say exactly what you said there. You don't need to be a marathon runner. A lot of the new science is putting aside now 
the medical advice about half an hour, three, four times a week, heart rate elevated is about metabolic equivalent of task. So like uh, or mess. So it's like, you know, taking a brisk walk or doing the gardening or walking the dog. It doesn't matter as long as you're non-sedentary, right? And, and we have that message within our programs and we say to people, don't separate it. And, and that's what we've done so far in education. It's been you're you're a jock or, or you're a you're a you're a, a an academic, right? But what you can do, and especially in a design thinking led way of education, you can involve more activity, more mobility within the learning process, right? Um, and 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 even just on a very simple level, sitting down less, get rid of the chairs within a classroom, have a brainstorming session where people are standing up and they play a game, and that is linked to learning. I was even. Re- Reading, uh, reading recently about the, the, you know, the design of chairs, right? And, and even chairs is, is quite a recent thing in, in human society, right? You know, a couple hundred years ago, before the Industrial Revolution, chairs were nowhere near as commonplace as they are now, right? Maybe royalty or, or would have a chair, and it was a very symbolic yeah. thing. You would sit on a chair during some sort of ceremony. But chairs are everywhere now, right? And classrooms, as they were conceived, first industrial revolution, chairs everywhere, everyone's sitting down and sedentary. We need to get beyond that. And a lot of what we do within our, our business instructions, we say to people, have a, a walking meeting, you know, it builds relationships, have a stand-up meeting like Agile, it's more efficient, yeah. right? Uh, research has shown that the design of a chair affects the quality of brainstorming, so you're more upright, your posture, you know, the whole power poses thing that came out a couple of years ago in TED, you no know, embodied cognition theory, it improves your confidence. So having that integrated way of body and mind, which not does not separate it from sport, but where activity is part of the learning process, and I think you could do that so easily within schools and for young kids to learn that and that'll take them through their whole life. Yeah, no, there's, there's a great book um, on that that I've, I've actually been sort of recommending. It's called Brain Rules. Uh, it was actually written, I think, by a, he's a neuroscientist, uh, um, American called John Medina. And and he makes some of these very points and he, he sort of traces it back to sort of our evolutionary um, origins as sort of hunter-gatherers. So a lot of what we did, we did on the move and that need to kind of keep moving, not necessarily at a, at a, at a running uh, pace is still, you know, quite, quite central to our cognitive function. Absolutely. Yeah. No, brain rails. It was a, it was a, it was a important reference for me even about 10 years ago when I was getting kicked off. Yeah. There's some good stuff in there. Great. Um, Stephen, I'm sort of conscious that we're sort of coming up to to our time, and and uh, first of all, we are looking forward to welcoming you to Wise to the summit in November. Tell us a little bit about what's you know what's coming up for you in in your in your work in your career, and and what it, what is it that you would be looking forward to at Wise? What are you kind of hoping to learn and pick up from the from the summit that's going to sort of help you for your work going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of what we're doing now in the lab, um, we're doing kind of longer engagements with with our clients to try and impact on culture. And I think in the past 10 years, it was such a new topic that people were really interested. And I, I did a whole ton of keynotes and, and just people, wow, this is new. This is, and it just entertaining or, or, or otherwise. And it was a lot of one-shot gigs, let's say, right? And and I was always conscious that I wanted to have that deeper engagement and actually see the changes that were happening on an organizational level. I've been lucky enough that people keep in touch that have been on our programs over the years and say, look, whatever benefit or, or 
I'm sure not everyone has this, right? But, you know, I've lost weight or I don't have a bad back or I'm now spending more time with my kids. One of the best ones that I had was just a couple of months ago. It was a senior banker and he said, my daughter wanted to thank you because now in the morning we've implemented this new habit. I do this 10, 15 minute Pilates thing and it, it's just a great way. And my daughter does it with me and we have so much fun. And that, that was just so rewarding. But now we're having these longer engagements where, as I say, we're moving beyond, let's say, health and well-being, but we're involving leadership, looking at behaviour change and how that affects the culture of the organisation, which is very exciting. And at the same time, I'm getting a lot of requests about dealing with millennials, right? And this is going to link to what I'm hoping to pick up and why and how to, you know, manage the kind of changing expectations of the workforce and now realising that these are not new topics that maybe, you know, you and I would be delighted to have in a workplace. These are the minimum, this is the minimal level or minimum benchmark that young talent wants and needs, right? So it's, it's it, that's keeping me on my toes, I think. And I'm looking forward to WISE to actually thinking how this even filters down to, you know, all levels of education. You know, my son is four, as I said earlier, so I'm very um, aware of the education that he's going to um, receive as he as he grows. You know, and 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 thinking about how young young people in in school can really have this broader conception of business. You know, the the, the first book that I published in the space, Sustaining Executive Performance, it was for two main audiences. It was for people who, let's say, were already broken. You know, senior managers who wanted to redesign their life, but it was also the kind of MBA students and before. I wanted to give them a different conception of what being successful in business meant, right? Or successful in life. And I think that has to start even at the school level, primary, secondary school education. And I'm just so excited with engaging with experts in that area because it's a kind of a white, white space for me. So I'm really looking forward to coming over. That's great. Well, again, we're very much looking forward to welcoming you in November. What's the best way before we sign off? What's the best way for people to sort of get in touch with you, find out find out more about what, what you're doing and, and, and your work. But there's obviously the podcast, which is called Chief Wellbeing Officer. So Chief Wellbeing Officer is available on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Yeah, and I guess, you know, we're pretty visible on social media. So just anyone, you know, typing my name in a search engine should should dig that out, you know, uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. You know, maybe we can put that on the, with, with the episode, but... Yeah, and, and the yeah, website. Yeah, we, we we're happy to do that. Yeah, yeah, and then the website of the Leadership Academy of Barcelona, uh, which is pretty. You maybe put that link on and just email through there. But yeah, it should be pretty easy to get a hold of if someone tries hard enough. Let's say. <laughs> Great, Stephen. Well, uh, thank you very much for uh, for your wise words. Pleasure, Stavros. All the best. Thank you. <laughs>